Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. We've been talking with the Democrats running for the U.S. Senate this week. The winner of next Tuesday's primary will go on to face incumbent Republican U.S. Senator Pat Toomey this fall. Today we hear from John Fetterman, the current mayor of the city of Braddock. John Fetterman, welcome to Smart Talk. Well, thank you for having me. It's uh, great to be here. I have some questions that I ask all the candidates who appear on the program. So let me get to those first, and then we'll get into some issues. The basic question is, why are you running for the U.S. Senate? I'm running for the United States Senate because uh, for the last 11 years, I've been mayor of a community that uh, I've been a champion for. And Braddock uh, is in western Pennsylvania, and it, it actually is home to the last steel mill in the Pittsburgh region. And uh, Braddock, like a lot of communities across uh, this great Commonwealth, uh, need a champion, and and the lessons and the things and uh, our policies, uh, I think, are really applicable and and uh, would serve as a roadmap for a lot of the communities here in, in Pennsylvania. So I'm running to be a champion for not only my community and my region, but for communities like Braddock uh, and and others whose best days are a generation ago uh, all across the state. You know, there are a lot of people who would take a look at Braddock and say, you know, this is a small community on the Pittsburgh suburbs. Uh, How does uh, being mayor of a small community like Braddock prepare you for the United States Senate? How do you answer that? Well, I, I would say it, it actually is, it's it's great preparation. Uh, you know, Katie McGinty's never held elective office period in, in her life, uh, and uh, Mr. Sestak has been in the military, and, and he certainly has had a, a great career in, in the military. But in terms of domestic issues, and in terms of urban issues, in terms of social policy issues, these are all issues that we have uh, addressed with with uh, success here in, in Braddock. And, the, the 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 town might be small, but the solutions are large, and and uh, they're certainly applicable uh, to communities of of uh, of all sizes across Pennsylvania. Well, let's talk about some issues. What are the most important issues facing this nation? Because we do have to talk about the country. Sure. Well, of course. I mean, I, I think that the, the the single biggest one is uh, it's the one that's the most pervasive and the one most difficult to. To really address is, is this inequality that is really eating away at, at the country, uh, and it's never more, uh, it's, it's no more uh, present and and and, uh, and jarring than when you come to a community like my own. And this idea that that we have uh, this income gap that we have here, and just in Allegheny County, my home county, um, between the, the poorest community, which is my own, and the wealthiest, is eight times, uh, and it's just it's just unacceptable. It's not sustainable and we in this country need to move away from that. And, and mortality rates in, in some of these communities are on, on uh, par with third world countries uh, for, for African-Americans and, and uh, just overall. These, uh, you know, and that permeates education, that permeates health care, that permeates uh, uh, education. I mean, to me, anyone that thinks that uh, inequality uh, is, a, is like a, just a one one issue uh, just doesn't, in my opinion, you know, understand uh, inequality. Well, I went to your website, and uh, under the issue section, I noticed that all the issues that you have listed, except national security and foreign policy, you have the word inequality in front of it. Inequality, income and wealth, inequality in health care, inequality in policing, inequality mm-hmm. in education. So uh, you just kind of touched on it, but why do you think this inequality exists? 
Well, I, I think it's a lot of different reasons. I, I, I think it's it's the, the the policies that have been enacted over the last thirty or forty years that outsource jobs, outsource manufacturing, and and uh, really stack the deck against uh, you know middle class communities like my own, where free trade agreements like NAFTA or the proposed uh, uh, TPP uh, would would further erode what's left of our manufacturing base. I mean, we're the the U.S. Steel, for example, uh, is. Uh, struggling mightily. Uh, their stock price dropped below eight dollars a share as recently as a couple months ago, and and uh, you know it's you just have uh, this this whole uh, you know industry like steel, for example, that is on the verge of of collapse and leaving the United States entirely. And there's there's others, and we we have to preserve and treat manufacturing jobs with the same uh, you know care and uh, and value as we do jobs in at Facebook or jobs in finance and because you know everyone has a different entry point into the labor market if we do nothing to safeguard and, and grow jobs that are accessible to uh, middle class people or high school graduates you know we can't be surprised to see them slide down the socioeconomic ladder uh, when we're only paying eight or nine dollars an hour for a lot of these jobs that are being created in the service sector so and that dovetails uh, nicely with Another key platform and a key difference between myself and and uh, the others in my races is that this is a strong, fervent belief in, in a fifteen dollar an hour minimum living wage. Uh, and and I think uh, for, from that standpoint, once we're able to start working on uh, paying people a living wage, then I think all these other things will continue to improve. <clears throat> but uh, at the end of the day, far too many people in our society are living off a wage that is nowhere close to. Uh, you know, dignified and being able to take care of themselves or certainly not their families. Actually, the other day I spoke with Katie McGinney, who also was advocating for a $15 per hour uh, minimum wage. Now, she was talking about phasing it in. Is that well, what let, you... let me just let me just stop you right there. Is that she's now talking about $15 an hour. But, you know, less than two years ago when she was running for governor, she was for a $9 an hour minimum wage and, and ran on that. So, it's important for you and your listeners to understand that I think it's because it's polling better now this go round that now all of a sudden she just thinks that folks deserve a six dollar an hour raise versus back in 2014. So, um, uh, you know, phasing it in, um, I mean, uh, you know, wh- whichever way it, it happens, you know, to acknowledge that we cannot, you know, have expect people to take care of themselves being paid anything less than that in most areas in the country. I want to talk more about that, but, you know, coming from a a small town, you have a lot of small businesses in your town, and you probably Mm -hmm. have, you know the argument against raising the minimum wage, whether it's raising it at all or raising it to $15 an hour. Uh, I'm sure you have some people in your town, some business people would say, you know, Mayor, if we do that, I'm not going to be able to hire as many people. What do you say to that? Well, I would just say everybody's society adjusts. You know, it was a, a radical concept that children wouldn't work in the fields or in a factory and actually go to school for, for, for 12 years. It was a radical concept that women would become the majority of the American workforce. Uh, you know, how are we going to accommodate all these new jobs and people come? I mean, if you look back over over the the last uh, 50 years and you look at the changes and, and you know, society adapts and society uh, you know, this false choice between, well, we have to keep people in permanent subservience and pay them $9 an hour for economic benefit for the rest of it. It's just, I just, it's an argument that I don't believe in. It's an argument that I don't buy. Um, society has 
has continued to go move forward, whether gas was three dollars and sixty nine cents a gallon or versus it was a dollar eighty seven a gallon. So uh, it's it's all about adapting to to the new normal, and I believe that the new normal should be. Uh, a living wage of $15 an hour. You have already provided a few examples, but I want to ask the question specifically to give you a little more time to do this. And this is a question that I do ask of all the candidates. What sets you apart from Joe Sestak and Katie McGinney? Why are you a better candidate for the U.S. Senate? Well, I'm not going to say that I am a better candidate. That's for you, the voters, to decide. What I can say that what sets us apart is, is that uh, it's it's biographical. Uh, it's a, a devotion to an idea and, and service uh, that I've spent the last 20 years working in, in communities and, and uh, that have just been uh, destroyed by a lot of the factors that now we're all talking about you know, as a party. Uh, I don't. I, we have presidential debates in Flint, Michigan, and I think that's important. And I think it's good to, to expose people to what life is like on the other side here, but. I think that needs to extend beyond just showing up with a case of bottled water and getting your picture taken and then, you know, just, you know, driving off or flying off. I think it requires Democrats as a party and, and, and on the ground to really make investments in these kind of communities and to make this a priority. And, and as we're able to improve and shore up the communities, whether it's Flint, Michigan, or whether it's Shemokin, or whether it's uh, McKeesport or any of the towns in Pennsylvania, um, I, I think that's the direction that we in the, the Democratic Party need to go. That's the direction I've taken over the last 20 years of my professional life, and I think that's what sets me apart uh, from, from Joe Sestak or, or Katie McGinty. The country appears to be divided, and nowhere else is uh, this polarization more evident than in Washington, D.C. Many people in this state and country believe that Washington just doesn't work anymore. Uh, on the campaign trail— uh, when where are you hearing from people out there? Are they saying to you that you know we're tired of the gridlock in Washington? We want some compromise. We want you to work across the aisle. I don't know whether you hear that in a in a primary campaign or not. But I guess the question I'm asking is, uh, how do we end this gridlock in Washington and get some cooperation? Well, there's there's no easy answer to that, and, and any candidate that suggests that they can, you know, he or she is being deceptive because there is no simple answer. The, 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 the bottom line is, is that even something that's constitutionally mandated, like confirming a Supreme Court justice, has fallen prey to this ridiculous partisan obstructionism. Uh, you've seen that in Pat Toomey and how he refuses to even consider this uh, the, the person for, for the Supreme Court, and that's, that's his job. That's one of the things that he's been entrusted to as a United States senator. Uh, and, and that extends to minimum wage. Uh, if if you on the other side of the aisle believe that somebody can live a quality, dignified existence for themselves and their family on seven thirty-five an hour or eight dollars an hour, uh, I I can't compromise with that. And it's it, it, it's important to, to to have principles. And until the the environment changes to make it so that it actually makes sense, um, uh, there, there's no middle ground there if you're not willing to budge beyond $8 an hour and you think that's fine. And, and Or if you think that just because it snowed last week that you don't have to worry about climate change, I, I can't compromise with that. It's, it's a serious existential threat to, to the planet. Uh, so, uh, and if you think that a, a woman's right to choose should be suspended and, and, uh, and, and uh, access to reproductive services and abortion should be restricted, 
I, I can't compromise with that. Uh, if you think that women, you know, deserve to be consistently paid uh, 20% less than men, uh, again, I, I can't compromise with that. So I, I think we're in gridlock because I, I think you have a, a party, the Republicans, that are, are entrenched in these indefensible ideas. And, and, you know, we need to move forward as a society. And if we can't do it now, um, uh, like we all would like to on the Democratic side, I think it means that we have to just make sure we keep building the argument until we're able to, to pass these kind of reforms. Um, nothing that we're uh, nothing that we're championing is radical. I mean, everybody knows whether you're Republican or Democrat, you can't live off eight or nine dollars an hour. You know, everybody knows uh, that uh, you know if, if climate change is real, we don't argue about the technology behind an iPhone or or behind electricity. So why are we arguing about the science behind climate? So, I mean, these, these things aren't, aren't anything other than reasonable, and the other side just has to come and accept that, that there are realities here. And, and, and the policies that the Democrats are putting forward are much more grounded in them compared to just uh, broad-based obstructionism simply because it's coming from the Obama administration. But the reality is right now, and we don't know whether this will be the reality when the next Congress is elected, is that there are Republican majorities in both mm-hmm. the House and the Senate. So it may be difficult if you are elected to the Senate and you're in the minority to even get some of those things to the floor of the Senate that that you just mentioned. I, I, so. I, I agree. And just because something's difficult doesn't mean that it's something that shouldn't be attempted. Um, and Ms. McGinty touts her record, you know, for five months as Governor Wolf's chief of staff. Well, they couldn't even get a budget passed until this past March. Uh, so so this idea that, that there's some wellspring of bipartisanship lurking around here in this race or this state is, is uh, it's just simply not true. And, and that extends all the way to this race. Uh, I'm not promising that if you elect me that I'll suddenly be able to break this, this uh, congressional uh, Senate logjam that's been working now for the last seven years, unfortunately. So, uh, but that just because it's difficult doesn't mean that it's not, shouldn't be attempted. Being, being the mayor of my town is a difficult task, but many people said, it's a lost cause, why are you even bothering? And in fact, we have been able to make uh, a, a significant improvements. So it, it's, it's not perfect and it, it never will be. And bipartisanship can be achieved, but it's certainly not going to be easy and it's certainly not um, possible when, uh, you know, the other you know, party is just clinging to these, you know, indefensible, in my opinion, uh, beliefs on, on what policy should be and what policy should look like. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest during this portion of the program is John Fetterman. He's one of the Democrats running for the U.S. Senate in next Tuesday's primary. OK, uh, I, I you know, if I was thinking about this, if you were a woman and I talked about your appearance, uh, people would criticize me, and right, rightfully mm-hmm. so. But you yeah. are unique. You are unique. You are a big guy. Mm-hmm. You're about six foot yeah. eight and over 300 yeah. pounds. You're imposing. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. you don't wear the shirt and tie when you're out on the campaign trail. Will you, in the, will you in the U.S. Senate? That's one of the questions I, 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 I heard someone ask. Yeah, I mean, that's been asked, and, and a lot's been made out of my appearance. And, and uh, again, I... You know, it, it is what it is. I, I, uh, I sometimes I, I would rather talk about issues, or I'd rather talk about uh, my ads or whatever. But you know, there there are some people that that certainly uh, you know are struck by uh, you know my my size, or I have I have tattoos, or 
I don't wear a shirt and tie. So I mean, there's that's that's out there. It's a there's good there's positive sides to that, and then there's there's negative sides to that. And and if if anyone listening thinks that his or her senator should wear a business dress or suit, um, you know, every day, then I I may not get your vote, and and that's that's okay. But I, uh, will I wear a suit and tie in the Senate I, again? I. I'm not picking out paint chips or curtains yet for the office, and, and uh, I'm, I'm really just focused on getting past Tuesday. And then, if uh, and even then, uh, if I am lucky enough to be chosen, it, it's still a long, tough road to hoe. Uh, given that Mr. Toomey certainly is a formidable opponent, uh, no matter who wins the race. So. Well, as I said, I hesitate to bring up your appearance, but you are unique. You mentioned your tattoos. Mm-hmm. And your yep. tattoos are not just artistic. You have messages no. with t- your tattoos. What, what do you have on I, your I arm? Do. I, I do. I have uh, one on, on one forearm. It's uh, Braddock zip code, 15104. And on the other are uh, the dates when people have, uh, we've lost people in our community through violence. And I've done both of those because they're statements that I've made about my devotion to uh, my community, devotion to the idea of, of uh, public service and and devotion to uh, particularly the dates that that these these lives mattered and and this was long before well it started before Twitter even started but um, and, and that kind of idea that uh, that's been espoused by the Black Lives Matter movement and other groups um, that was the genesis behind you know this is that you know these lives do matter these lives just weren't a blurb on the news or you know in the, the newspaper there were. You know, these people had families. These people had, you know, people in their lives that loved them, and and their lives are a senseless, you know, tragedy. And and uh, that's why I instituted that as well. So yeah, they're they're not artistic. They are uh, strictly um, just, I guess. Uh, I, I I joke, but it's true. I I wear my heart on my sleeve, so to speak, with them. That's that's how I say it. How many uh, lives are tattooed on your mind? Nine. So, as mayor of uh, Braddock, what have you done to try to reduce the violence? Sure. Well, well, we have, and and we went five and a half years without the loss of life in our community. So, um, and what we've done is we've developed a really, uh, I think, really strong community policing model. Uh, we developed a, a proactive rather than reactive police force. We were able to let go of some officers that, in my opinion. Um, would be better uh, better served uh, in different professions, and we hired some really great officers, and uh, we created the largest summer employment program for youth, you know, here in Allegheny County, and uh, so we've taken some really proactive steps, and I make myself uh, very accessible. I will often be out on patrol of my own uh, as well, so we've we've really you know created a new paradigm of policing here in the community, and. And uh, we've really been supported by the residents here. And I think that uh, explains the significant drop that we've had in number of calls of service and uh, guns and, and, of course, violence overall. Well, let's talk about guns, because uh, you do uh, say uh, on your website that you are a gun owner, but you're also calling oh. for um, you know, what a lot of people refer to as common sense uh, ways to control gun violence. Mm-hmm. Talk sure. about that. Absolutely. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a gun owner, and I have been uh, for, for many, many years. And uh, when I was a teenager, I even went deer hunting uh, a few times at Adams County. So uh, so I, I get it, and I understand it. And, and the vast, 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 overwhelming majority of gun owners uh, do it so safely, law-abidingly. Um, uh, 
and, and it's just an interest or a passion of theirs or a hobby. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and as a gun owner, I would say to you uh, that uh, join us. You know, if anyone is that, why as a gun owner, as I am, wouldn't we want to make sure we have the best, strongest, most reasonable common sense regulations to make sure that the fewest number of people lose their lives as a result of guns, period. It just makes sense to me. Like, you know, you want the safest cars for your kids. Um, you know, we have laws to help make sure that happens. It, you know, I'm a new parent, uh, relatively speaking, and I remember all the research I did on car seats. And you're like, well, we, you know, we want the safest car seat because we want to minimize the, you know. So this idea that, you know, in, in every other field, we want the safest uh, practical uh, legal protections and, and laws. Why wouldn't we want that in guns as well? Uh, and I think the overwhelming majority of gun owners do share my view. And the thing that stands in the way of that is the NRA. And, and the NRA, if, if they would attack by a position, are only doing uh, by, by attacking a fellow gun owner who just wants reasonable, uh, you know, gun reform legislation passed. And, um, and, and why isn't it? Because it, you know, benefits the gun lobby to, to not have these uh, legis- pieces of legislation. But at, at the end of the day, if we were talking about cars versus guns, we wouldn't be having this argument. And, and uh, the Second Amendment is the Second Amendment, but it, 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 it doesn't mean that we, we can't and shouldn't and ha- also have the moral obligation to make sure that these weapons uh, are governed under a system that is uh, uh, most conducive to pre- preventing uh, needless tragedies by keeping them out of the hands of those that would hurt themselves or others. Mayor Fetterman, you're a supporter of uh, Bernie Sanders, correct? Yes, sir. Uh, Bernie Sanders, there are certain things that have really caught on, especially with younger voters in this country. Mm-hmm. One is uh, universal health care. Another is uh, free college tuition. Do you support those things? And, of course, the big question afterwards is how do you pay for them? Well, sure. I mean, I, I think in terms of health care, uh, um, I think there's some people on, on the Democratic side that have tried to make universal health care the enemy of the Affordable Care Act, and, and and I would I just reject that out of hand. I'm a big fan and supporter of the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act uh, enabled my family to purchase insurance for the first time. My wife and I, from mayor of a small town, I, I don't have uh, health insurance, and, and neither did my wife. So it allowed us to, to purchase insurance, and shortly after we bought our first policy, my wife missed a step and broke a bone in her foot, and I can't even imagine what the medical bills would have been, and not to mention access to appropriate care if we didn't have health insurance. So this, I'm sure, has happened millions of times across the country, and, and the Affordable Care Act has insured nearly 90% of Americans, and, and I think that's an amazing accomplishment, and I tip my hat to the president and everyone that voted for it. So it is in no way an inferior law, uh, but but uh, it can be improved incrementally if, if the, uh, uh, the Congress uh, uh, isn't... Uh, you know, I mean, let's be honest. Uh, Congress just voted to repeal Obamacare for the 78th time or whatever. Uh, I mean, it's performance art for those guys. Um, so uh, the idea that we can enact universal health care simply on sheer force of will isn't necessarily going to happen in the immediate future. But it, I think it's an important ideal, and I think that's the direction that we in this country should go. And, and this is something that we should do to join every other major industrialized country that affirms that health care is a basic fundamental human right. It's not something that should be rationed 
or it's something that should be only for uh, those that are wealthy enough to be able to afford it. But how do you pay and, and for, for it? Uh, how do you pay for it? Is this you know how how's it working for us now? You know how do you pay for it? It's like you you negotiate with Medicare, uh, Medicare negotiates with the drug companies. Excuse me. Otherwise, you have systems like we have now where it, you know that's fifty to fifty five billion dollars a year that goes out the door at taxpayers' expense because we are the only country that doesn't negotiate for better pharmaceutical prices, uh, and that's why they have more lobbyists. The pharmaceutical industry has more lobbyists and DC than. Uh, than members of Congress. And how do you pay for it is the profits from the insurance companies, the, uh, the spiraling health care costs. I mean, uh, the idea that we, you know, we're not spending enough money on health care is we are spending too much money on health care. And, and, and single-payer uh, would lead to overall uh, less money being spent on health care, and it would help contain costs, just like it does in every other country. Quickly, you brought up college tuition. You brought up college tuition. Um, you know, we in, certainly in Pennsylvania have turned our back on our state school systems. Every year, uh, the, the amount of aid that these schools get uh, it continues to, to drop, and it's, it's a matter of making it a priority. And on the other side, you have financial aid in terms of student loan debt. You know, we have a flawed system, in my opinion, here in, in, in uh, this country. And I would, uh, you know, during my studies and policy reviews as part of being in the race, you know, I think the best model that I've come across is the Australian model, where uh, student loans, you know, applying for student loans is a one-page simple application. Um, uh, in fact, they had academics uh, from Australia try to fill out an American form, and they honestly couldn't. They gave up after several days because they just couldn't figure it out. Um, and then, you know, Australian uh, doesn't charge any interest. It's just tied to the inflation rate. If you get sick or you don't make enough money or you're unemployed, you don't owe anything, um, and you uh, top out at a top rate of 4% uh, at a certain income level. And if you really do well, let's say you become successful at, at you know an attorney or doctor, uh, at, at $79,000, you, you pay 8%, and that's the most you'll ever pay back uh, uh, per year of, for your student loan. And I think th- that is a much better system than what we have in this country, where if you get sick or you don't make enough money, you still owe. And, and uh, it's, it's really crushing to a lot of people. So simple reforms that they can go a long way to making the college uh, experience more affordable and much, much less stressful. So uh, I think, again, these aren't radical ideas. I just think they're just common sense reforms, much like gun control or much like um, uh, living wage or like marijuana legalization as well. Uh, Mayor Fedwin, we're almost, almost out of time, and uh, I always want uh, a candidate to be able to leave a message with uh, with voters. In about 30 seconds or less, what message would you leave with voters? I would just leave to the voters that it, it, I'm the one true progressive running in this race in the Democratic side with a proven track record of, of actually you know taking on issues that are really at the forefront of the Democratic uh, parties debate that we're having, and that's all. Both most of these issues are rooted in income inequality, and these issues, whether it's universal pre-K, whether it's adult basic education, whether it's gun control, whether it's gun violence, our nation's war on drugs, immigration, LGBT rights, all of these issues that we have exercised leadership on successfully in Braddock make me, I believe, um, uh, uh, the strongest candidate for your consideration in this race. Uh, of the three of us. 
John Fetterman is one of the three Democrats running for the U.S. Senate here in Pennsylvania. And uh, again, next Tuesday is Election Day, primary Election Day. The winner of that race will go on to face the incumbent Republican Senator Pat Toomey. WITF's Election 2016 coverage is supported by the Harrisburg Law Office of Saul Ewing, LLP. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We've often heard the statistic that half of all marriages end in divorce. Well, the good news is that statistic isn't actually accurate. The figure is actually less than that. But the bottom line is many married couples do divorce, and often after they've had children. The best-case scenario is the parents have an amicable relationship and don't speak negatively about their ex-spouse. But that doesn't always happen, and sometimes children can become alienated from one of their parents. Monday is Parent Alienation Awareness Day. What is it, and what can be done to repair the wounds? Joining us on today's program is Susan Spencer, is active in the Pennsylvania chapter of the Parental Alienation Awareness Organization here in central Pennsylvania. Also, uh, Pam Moran is a licensed social worker and psychotherapist. Uh, Ms. Moran, welcome to the program. Thank you. And Dr. Craig Childress is a licensed clinical psychologist specializing in treating children and families. His specialties include assessing and consultation for parental alienation dynamics. Dr. Childress, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. Uh, And again, I'm sorry about that. Uh, That's how it came through. But uh, Suzanne, let me go to you and uh, and have you tell your story now, if you would, uh, how you became involved in the movement because you experienced this firsthand. Yeah, good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, I became aware of this in the last 10 years or so. Um, It's something that I've experienced, I've learned all my life. I experienced it as a child, uh, being alienated from my dad. And then I found myself in the same situation with my children. Um, when they, when my boys were about seven and ten, I knew that something was not working right, but I couldn't put my finger on it. And one day I was driving them after school to their activities, and my younger son just started weeping. And I said, "What? What's wrong?" And he said, "I'm really sorry, mommy." And I said, "What? What did you do?" <laughs> and he said, um, I, "I lied about you." And I said, "Well." why? And he said, because I had to. He said, Mommy, every time when we come home, well, we had joint custody, we have to sit in the living room and tell dad and the stepmom all of the horrible things that happened at your house. And we tell them nothing bad happened. And they said, yes, bad stuff happened. So you just have to tell us. And once you tell us, then you can have dinner and do your homework. And then he just burst into tears and said, Mommy, I was so hungry. I just made stuff up because I had to go to the bathroom and I was so hungry. And he just sobbed. And his older brother in the back seat kept saying, shut up, shut up. You're going to get us in trouble. We're not allowed to tell. That was a pivotal point for me because it made me realize that my kids were being damaged and there was nothing I could do to stop it. And there was nothing I could do to prove it. And I watched the spirit and the life be drained out of my kids one week at a time. And uh, they fought it for many years, but this continued for decades. It's gone on now for over 20 years. And my boys are now, well, all my, all my, um, my three older kids are all adults and they've all gotten married and now they've all gotten divorced. 
and they will not speak to me. You and have no relationship with them. Not no contact whatsoever. I also have four great four grandchildren, and I have no contact with them. And uh, they're in the four, five, six age range. And it's it's sad that I want to be in their lives. I I've always wanted to be a grandma. Um, and there's somebody who loves them out there, and they are not getting an opportunity to experience that. You said that this uh, that this incident was a pivotal, a pivotal one. Mm-hmm. The boys were seven and ten. How much? How much longer after that that you were like cut off with uh, no uh, no relationship whatsoever? Uh, it, it's a slow, insidious process. Um, my older one. Um, left when he was 16. Um, his dad really um, pushed to get him to reject me. And so he finally came to me and said, Mom, you know, I just can't stay here because your house is smaller than the help for most of my friends. And um, so that that was a little bit, that was very difficult. Um, my younger son wasn't nearly as um, easily alienated. And so they sent him to a military school. Um, Their dad lived about a mile from me. But once my son went to military school, I actually got to see him twice a month. So that was a good thing. But it was a dreadful experience. Why? Why did your husband do this? Um, I mean, you had to have conversations with him about what are you doing to the kids? um, He his rationalization was I have to protect them from you. Why? Um, I have complex PTSD, and at that time it was not a diagnostic option. And what they were diagnosing all of us who experienced chronic abuse in our lives was with multiple personality disorder. That obviously was corrected. um, But at that time, um, their dad seized upon that as, oh, you know, you're a crazy person, and you're going to kill them someday, and you're going to hurt them. And that's... he push that strongly on them and and strongly on me and anybody else and everybody else who would listen. It was a one-sided conversation. Dr. Childress, uh, you're in the West Coast, by the way, and thanks for getting up early and talking to us. Uh, you're considered one of the experts. You've written books about the topic. Uh, what you've just heard with Suzanne's story, is that typical with uh, parents or uh, family members that are going through uh, adult uh, parental alienation. Yeah, that's very typical. Um, one of the uh, misconceptions is that it arises because of one parent bad mouthing the other parent. That's not actually how it takes place. It's much more um, manipulative and insidious. It involves eliciting a criticism of the other parent from the child, and then the allied parent hides behind that child criticism and say, it's not me who's criticizing the other parent, it's the child who's doing it. Mm -hmm. But the child's criticism is actually elicited by this um, directive and motivated questioning, the leading questions from the allied parent. And so uh, once they get the child to believing that they're somehow victimized by the supposedly abusive other parent, that defines a storyline within the family that the child is being victimized and the other parent is automatically defined as being abusive, and that allows the allied parent to take on the the coveted role as being the protective parent. And so that 
It's a false story, though. It's a false narrative. But unfortunately, it's not recognized as that. And a lot of mental health professionals actually accept and believe this false narrative that's being put forward. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, because uh, it is not universally accepted. In fact, uh, there is a condition uh, that you talk about, that uh, parental alienation syndrome, and, you know, which connotates that uh, it is a medical condition, a psychological condition, uh, but not all organizations in the field endorse that, do they? No, and in fact, I don't endorse it. Um, what happened in the 1980s was this psychiatrist, Richard Gardner, proposed that it represented this new syndrome, this new form of pathology. And that created a lot of controversy, and people are still arguing about it 30 years later. What I've done in my work, though, is gone back and diagnosed the pathology within standard and established constructs and principles within psychology. And what it actually, in the clinical term for this, I'm a clinical psychologist, is pathogenic parenting. Uh, patho is pathology and genic is the creation. So what the allied parent is doing is creating psychopathology in the child as a means of meeting the parent's own needs. And once we go back to standard and established psychological principles, it is easily diagnosable and easily recognizable. And so I would, that's what I'm doing right now is urging professional mental health uh, to reestablish the, or recognize this pathology as a form of standard and existing types of within the family. Mm -hmm. Pam Moran is a psychotherapist and licensed social worker. She uh, works in Lemoyne, has office in uh, Lemoyne in Cumberland County. Pam, you work with families. Uh, yes. Do you see this, and how often do you see it? Well, I'm, I'm increasingly seeing it, but I'm not seeing it as often as I believe it's out there because there's just such a misunderstanding, and I think parents who are experiencing this, it takes them some time to really understand what's going on themselves, and then they need to find a provider that understands, and typically what happens is they go to a therapist, and uh, most therapists in general really don't have an understanding of the dynamics or the developmental pathway of how parent alienation develops. And uh, Dr. Childress was talking about how the child develops a false narrative. And typically, by the time the parent is seeking some help, the child's developed already has this false narrative that they come to believe themselves. And most therapists, when they hear the child um, stating their narrative and they hear anything that might resemble the parent not treating them well or being abusive in any way, a therapist, it, you know, becomes, high, you know, most therapists are highly sensitive to abuse and they should, they should be concerned. However, um, without understanding the dynamics or having an awareness or being able to know the red flags of parent alienation, they feed into that story that the child tells them instead of questioning or knowing how to question um, that narrative. Well, they would. And, I mean, they're not going to, for the most part, uh, when 
a young person or a child, or, when they're sitting there telling them a story, they're not going to say, you're not telling the truth, or they're not going to question them for the most part. That's the problem. And, and it's understandable why, you know, we're taught as therapists, you know, if a child says they're abused, you need to do something. You need to call children and youth. You need to, you know, and... In, you know, and, and, all, and sometimes you do. That is very serious. And you do need to look at whether the child was, in fact, abused. But oftentimes, um, or not oftentimes, but in the case of parent alienation, the child has come to believe that they're being victimized, as he said, or they're being abused. And you have to question the details of that abuse as to... Because in parent, in the case of parent alienation, the child has come to believe this. But how have they come to believe this? Sometimes it's a small incident. I mean, parents do make mistakes. Parents don't always do all the right things. And sometimes a small incident is blown up or um, or even even in the case of a parent having been verbally abusive, physically abusive or even um, sexually abusive. It is not normal for any child or, or for the great majority of children to reject their parent, even in that case. So that is a it's a red flag. Mm. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. During this portion of the program, we're talking about parental alienation. Our guest, Dr. Craig Childress, a licensed, licensed clinical psychologist specializing in treating children and families. His specialties include assessing and consultation for parental alienation dynamics. Pam Moran is a licensed social worker and psychotherapist. And Susan Spencer is active in the Pennsylvania chapter of the Parental Alienation Awareness Organization here in central Pennsylvania. Uh, Dr. Childress, something that uh, Pam Moran was just describing, I have to tell you that the word that came into my mind when she was describing what she saw and what she sees and what is missed is the word brainwashing. It almost sounds as if in a case like this, you have one parent brainwashing the other, the the children. um, And people go to that term. And again, that's not a defined clinical term within clinical No, I, I, I didn't think right? it would be, yeah. <laughs> the, the defined clinical term is a role reversal relationship in which the parent is using the child to meet the parent's needs. And the parent, um, so imagine a child comes back from visitation, like Suzanne described, and the parent just hounds them. What went wrong at the other parent's house? What was the problem? Tell me, you know, what, what happened? And eventually the child offers a criticism then the parent inflames that criticism and goes, oh, my God, I can't believe your mom was like that. Oh, she's so insensitive to what you want. And they just make it a blown-up issue to where the child is going, gee, I wonder if the other parent is really a bad parent. I wonder if I'm not, I am being psychologically abused by the other parent. And the false narrative that develops, when you probe for specifics, the child says, I don't want to be with my mom. And because she's abusive. And a lot of therapists just will take it and accept it from there. But if you probe a little bit further and say, why? Tell me something that happened. Well, she took my iPhone away. Well, why did she take your iPhone away? Well, because I didn't do my chores. That's not abusive. That's not a reason to reject the other parent. But because of the distorting influence of the allied parent, 
the child has come to believe that's abusive parenting that deserves the rejection of the other parent. And so it is um, very distorting of the child's perception of reality. We have an email here from a listener that says, I'm unofficially separated from the father of my children for many reasons. I do not intend to alienate them from him, however. However, I do not want them to marry someone like him. How can I make sure they know the traits in him that make him a bad partner without discussing his failings with them? I mean, divorced parents, separated parents have had to deal with this, but that's a good question. I mean, she says she doesn't want to alienate, doesn't want to badmouth, but at the same time wants to make sure that they don't marry someone like their father. What, what kind of advice can you give to someone like that? Pam? That they don't want to, I'm, I, I'm sorry, I don't think I understand that question. She is saying that, uh, you know, they're, they're separated, but mm -hmm. uh, she doesn't want to uh, badmouth the father to the kids, sure. but she doesn't want the kids to marry someone like the father. <laughs> so how yeah. can she keep them from doing that without badmouthing, without criticizing the father? Well, I think that it's important under any circumstance not to badmouth the other parent. That child deserves and has a right to grow up and determine what you know their thoughts, feelings about that parent themselves. And that's just to me, good parenting is allowing the autonomy of thoughts and feelings to develop for the child on their own. And the way that she could deal with that really is if they're say if they say something that they don't like about their father or that they notice as they grow up, that she can reflect how they feel and show empathy without bad, bad mouthing him. And that I would suggest that, you know, she works hard on trusting her own children and how she's raising them, trusting that they will come to their own conclusions. And really a healthy child is going to, a healthy child grows up to recognize all the good things in their parent and, and have a relationship based on all those good things and also recognize some things that they don't like about their parent. And that's okay. That doesn't make them all, nobody's all bad or all good. And the best way she can deal with that is just, you know, help help them by reflecting and empathizing, but never saying anything negative. And she can't control what what other people do. She can only control her own self, and that's what's important. Okay. All right. Uh, we got another email here. I got divorced nine years ago from an abusive relationship. After I won my custody battle, my children were so damaged, my relationship with my son, now 25, was completely destroyed. And my daughter, now 16, is living apart from me due to fear implanted by their mother. How do I rescue my relationship with my children? Dr. Childress, this is probably the biggest question of all uh, in our conversation is, using the terminology here, how do you rescue that relationship or how do you uh, try to approach the children and maintain a relationship with them? What's by, First, by mental health understanding what the pathology is and what happens in this high-conflict divorce all divorces involve separation and loss, which causes sadness and grief. So everybody in the family is feeling sadness and grief. The problem with this particular type of pathology is that one parent, the allied parent, translates their own sadness and, and grief into anger and resentment towards the other parent. They blame the other parent, and they're very angry and hostile towards the other parent. 
and under their influence, the child comes to interpret the child's own sadness and grief at the loss as being anger and blame and resentment directed towards the other parent. And what we're actually dealing with is the child has a misunderstood grief response, a misunderstood sadness that becomes even more inflamed when they lose a relationship with their beloved parent, the other parent. But they don't understand what that sadness and grief is. They think it's anger. They think it's, it's coming from something bad the other parent is doing that's hurting them. So to recover the children is, is actually relatively simple once we get them into therapy, which is just helping them understand that it's not anger and resentment they're feeling. It's sadness and loss. And the moment we restore that attachment bond to the beloved parent, things resolve themselves. The child no longer feels the sadness and the anger goes away and, and things restore themselves back to normal. But how are you going to get those kids into therapy if the allied parent, as you, you call that person, says, no, there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with these kids. These kids are very, uh, they're bright, they uh, are perceptive, they see you for what you are. You know, how are you going to do that? Mental health needs to make an accurate diagnosis of this pathology. That if you know what you're looking for, if you know what the pathology is, it's a trauma pathology being transferred from the parent to the child, there are clear indicators um, of the false narrative of the, the pathology in the child. And once you recognize the diagnostic indicators of this, then we can go ahead and begin to treat the child. Diagnosis guides treatment. Right now, we're not making an accurate diagnosis of the pathology. Too many mental health professionals are not expert enough in this type of family pathology, so they are winding up uh, accepting and colluding with the false narrative that's being created by the allied parent, rather than recognizing and appropriately diagnosing now, the pathology. I understand what you're saying, but I, I only, and actually, I only have about 30 seconds left, but for those parents out there who are saying, you know, okay, I, I'd love to be able to get my children uh, into therapy to, to talk about this, but the other parent will not allow that or keeps them from doing it? Thir I know. 30 seconds. <laughs> the, that is a major problem. So then you have to go to court and get a court order to do that. But even when they get into therapy, the therapist is not accurately diagnosing the pathology. The accurate diagnosis of this pathology is a DSM diagnosis of child psychological abuse. And once we make the diagnosis of child psychological abuse, this shifts our dialogue and discussion from child custody and visitation over to child protection concerns. Mm. Dr. Craig Childress is a licensed clinical psychologist who has written about uh, uh, parent alienation. I, we have a few emails. Dr. Childress, do you mind if I uh, forward some of those emails to you? Okay. Susan Spencer is active in the Pennsylvania chapter of a parental alienation awareness organization. Pam Moran is a licensed social worker and psychotherapist. Thank all of you for being with us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Talk to you on Monday morning.